Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we're going all the way back to the 3rd century and to a city that's said to have been built uh, by Solomon. It was once called Tadmor, and then it became known as Palmyra, and it uh, sits on the northeast edge of the Syrian desert. And our focus today is on a woman who was actually covered in the podcast several years ago, uh, Zenobia of Palmyra, and uh, that was when the podcast was running much shorter. And uh, Katie and Sarah did a, a an episode on her, and Zenobia is a historical figure that has become so mythic, and she's you know classified as a warrior woman. Uh, and she, there are so many variations to her story, and there's so many layers to the politics that were going on at the time with uh, Syria and specifically Palmyra and Rome that I thought maybe it would be nice to give a more fleshed out version of it. Yes. Um, and it's an interesting pronunciation point. Mm-hmm. I know they say Palmyra in the original episode. I listened to a bunch of different pronunciation guides. The overwhelming majority went with Palmyra. Okay. So just... Yes. We do that sometimes. We start looking for pronunciations for things, and we will hear... Sometimes it makes it way worse. Yeah. We will hear multiple, completely different pronunciations from equally trustworthy sources and, like, (laughs) equally native sources to the place that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, uh, that happens with... um, you know, if you listen to English all over the United States, certainly then if you include other countries that speak English as their first language, you will hear a, many different pronunciations of common words yes. and even specific uh, place names. So it happens. But we're going with Palmyra for this one. So uh, there was an article on pre-Islamic Arab queens that was written for the American Journal of Semitic Languages and Literatures way back in 1941. And in that article, author Nabia Abbott opens by noting that the first Arab queen on record uh, is in the 10th century BCE. And that name will no doubt be familiar to our listeners because that first queen was the Queen of Sheba. And while the biblical account of her visit to King Solomon is uh, a little short on details and specificity about her, uh, and even her origins as being from South Arabia is pretty consistently debated by historians. As a monarch, she became ingrained in the stories of many different cultures and many different religions. And she's even referenced casually in conversation by people like, oh, aren't you just the Queen of Sheba? Uh, She's become an idiom. Yeah, she's really, she's her own little uh, magical icon. But there have been many, many Arab queens. And while the Queen of Sheba may have paved the way, the woman that we're talking about today came to be known as Palmyra's rebel queen in the third century. And she came into her position through marriage, but she really proved to be an extremely capable ruler. So to get into her story, we need a little bit of background of the relationship between Rome and Palmyra. So in the year 235, there was a revolt, which was engineered by Maximinus, who was commander of the Roman army. And this led to the murders of the ruling duo of Rome at the time. That was Alexander Severus and his mother, Julia Avita Mamea. And the death of the two of them kicked off this half-century-long period of civil unrest. During the 50 years from 235 to 285, there were more than two dozen emperors uh, as anarchy and revolt just sort of became the way that things worked. And a lot of these rulers were not actually Roman. Yeah, so you're looking at an average reign time of two years or less. 
there were some that ran longer, which meant others ran shorter. <laughs> That's a lot of quick turnover. Uh, and so, for example, from 244 to 249, speaking of rulers that were not actually Roman, uh, Marcus Julius Philippus ruled, and he had previously been known as Philip the Arab. Uh, he had a distinguished military service, and that combined with some wily moves in getting discontented soldiers to revolt for him actually gained him leadership in Rome after ousting Gordian IV. And Marcus Julius Philippus wanted to set up an Arab dynasty, so he actually promoted members of his own family, including his seven-year-old son, into prominent political positions. But since his rule did fall in that 50 years of unrest, I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say that his ambitions of having a dynasty uh, were a little bit dashed. But another family did manage to create a near dynasty, not in Rome proper, but in Palmyra. Sometime around 230 or 231, Odenathus became a Roman senator. His son, Heron, was the first man to be titled Ras Tadmor, or Race Tadmor, making him the chief of Palmyra, uh, which was a city in central Syria. And Palmyra dates back uh, at least to the 19th century BCE, though in the 3rd century, a road running through it and its oasis made made it an important travel and trade route. Uh, The Palmyrene population was descended from many, many tribes that had blended together, and they actually spoke this dialect of Aramaic. So it was almost like this really interesting trade route melting pot. Um, You know, it became a really central place for things to come and go, and even for people to kind of come and go and add their own cultural flavor. And it, um, it was very unique in that way. Heron also had a son named Odenathus after his grandfather, And he was able not only to inherit the power and standing of his father, but also to really consolidate and expand it. He managed to rise to such a big position of prominence that he eventually became recognized as the king of Palmyra. Uh, And that at that point, the city had become a really significant seat of influence in the region. So if that sounds a little bit wild with all of this sudden gathering of power and then a person being able to say, "Uh, by the way, I'm king of this area now. Um, when he had been, you know, sort of more of a a lower level ruler, it is wild. But <laughs> remember that Rome was kind of a train wreck at this point. It was in a perpetual state of chaos. There was constant infighting. You know, one ruler was being overthrown after another. And Sasanian Persia was a very real threat to Rome at the time. Uh, and incidentally, Palmyra sat squarely between Persia and Rome. And what that means is that Odenathus in the midst of all of this infighting and him growing his city and his power, had actually become the most important politician in what was then called the Roman East. Very fortunately for the Romans, Odenathus was a gifted military strategist. So in spite of Persia being really better positioned in terms of power, he was able to shut down the Persian advances on Rome's territory and power uh, via this series of well-planned campaigns. And uh just as an interesting side note, where Odenathus kind of put his loyalty at this point in time was sort of interesting. M- many historians will say, really, he was better aligned with Persia, but there were some other conflicts going on there that kind of made him throw in his lot with Rome. Uh And so that's really why he defended the area against the oncoming Persians. Uh, and But despite his popularity and his celebrated status for having basically saved Rome from a much more powerful and well-organized army, Odenathus was assassinated in 266. 
And at the same time, his eldest son, who is yet another heron, uh, because they kept naming one after one would name their next son after the father, and so it goes Odenathus Heron, Odenathus Heron, uh, was also killed. So his his heir at the time was killed, his obvious heir. Um and that sort of leads us to how Zenobia came to power. Right. And about sixteen years before his death, in the year two fifty, Odenathus married Zenobia. And with his sudden death, she stepped in to act as regent for their surviving son, Babalathus. And uh, for a little bit of background on Zenobia, because she does sort of come into the story and the politics almost out of nowhere. Uh, there's a book by Pat Southern called Empress Zenobia, Palmyra's Rebel Queen. And in it, the author points out that because we don't really have a reliable account of Zenobia's life, her story really has a lot of uh, different versions and variations. Arab sources reference her as being the daughter of a chief uh, of the Amlaki or Amalaki tribe, which who was named Nyla. And she is in some tellings labeled as Queen Tadi and is sometimes referenced as Nafsha, although that name is also used in some versions of the story for a sister that Zenobia may or may not have even had. Um, another theory about her origin actually suggests that she was the daughter of Julius Aurelius Zenobius Zabdila, who was an army leader of Palmyra. Uh, and some even suggest that she was actually a descendant of Antiochus. So there is a lot of um, questioning and many question marks surrounding even her parentage. So any story that you hear about her uh, has likely been colored by the, the person who told it a little bit. So much like when we did uh, the Boudicca story, it was a very similar situation where it's like there are lots of accounts, but they're a little fuzzy and they don't seem to match up. So just keep that in mind as we talk about Zenobia going forward. Her name on the coinage of her rule is Septimia Zenobia Sebast. So since naming often denoted family lines at this point, it's led some people to wonder about a different father than all of those who were listed before. But it's kind of it's more possible that the name was actually bestowed upon her by her husband. Yeah, he uh, when he had risen to a certain level of prominence, he bestowed his, that name on people on many people in his um, his group, his close friends and family, because names were very important and considered a big element of respect. And it's also uh, worth noting, and they talk about it a little bit more in the, um, the episode that Katie and Sarah did, that just in making her own coinage, Zenobia was being a little bit rebellious. By a little bit, I mean a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, rather than going with the standard Roman currency and bringing that in. We're making our own money. She minted money. her own. And one interesting point that I found when looking through Pat Southern's book, uh, she describes the source material when researching Zenobia as, quote, irritatingly contradictory. And I just found that sort of charming because I think we've all run up against that when we're doing research, particularly on really ancient topics. Yes. They, they don't match up all the time. Yeah, so we kind of do our best to put the pieces of the puzzle together, but there's always going to be a little bit of uncertainty. Yeah, especially people in antiquity who... Like, we're not necessarily born into a really notable family. They just kind of arrive on the scene. Yeah, they, they just show up, <laughs> and we're going to kind of guess who where they came from. Yeah. According to this sparse information that we have, Zenobia was born in 240 or 241, but there's really no corroboration on those dates. Also problematic is the fact that sources list her as 17 or 18 when she married Odenathus in 255, so th- we have a lot of numbers that don't really add up. 
yeah, the math is uh, not doesn't really function properly in that. So um, she was Odonathus' second wife. That son of his named Hiron, uh, named Heron, that died the same time he was assassinated was from his first wife. Zenobia bore him a second son, Vabalathus, between roughly 258 and 260. So he would have been uh, somewhere between six and eight when his father was assassinated. So obviously not old enough to rule, which is why she took over as regent. So going back to Zenobia's rule, mm-hmm. uh, it turned out that she really took to ruling like a duck to water. She was a really smart woman. She was well-educated. She was multilingual. And she did not have any problem stepping up to command forces and make state decisions. She was not a woman who lacked for confidence in the least. So this actually brought up kind of a problem. Claudius, too, who was not at all fond of Palmyra's independent standing, decided to take Zenobia's kingdom by force. And in 267... Roman troops invaded Syria. And this plan didn't uh, pan out so well for Claudius II. It's unclear why he thought the same forces that had so deftly turned away Persian attacks uh, and save Rome would fall to the Roman army, which everyone had recognized was weaker than the army they had just defeated. But uh, his troops were soundly defeated by the Palmyran or Palmyrene. I've seen it written both ways. Soldiers. The defeated emperor just decided that he would leave Zenobia to her reign. They kind of had a a careful alliance. Uh, they were friendly, but not exactly tight uh, for the rest of Claudius II's sovereignty. So as a new ruler who had just repelled Roman invasion to secure Palmyra's independence, Zenobia's first priority was to shore up her position. So even though there were bigger events playing out involving Rome and its position in the world, her focus was on Palmyra. Yeah, you have to wonder if having watched her husband kind of side up with Rome and then really getting burnt in the deal because he got killed right after he saved them, if she, if that didn't pretty significantly impact her approach to ruling and saying, no, no, it's going to be us first. Uh, and she really, in some accounts, some of the newer... Um, biographies of her really do focus on her more as like, I'm trying to look out for my country and my people. And it's not so much about her being power hungry, which is how she's sometimes portrayed. But she first expanded Palmyra's borders towards Mesopotamia to the east and then towards Asia Minor in the northwest. And during this time, she wasn't really neglecting Palmyra's duties and its ties with Rome as part of their alliance. But like I said, she really did have a sense that she should be looking out for Palmyra first, always. When Roman Emperor Claudius died, Zenobia became a little more aggressive in her expansion of the territory, although she also seems to have kept an effort to keep the peace with Claudius's successor, Aurelian. Palmyran coins of the period feature Aurelian, which uh, shows, you know, some kind of amicable agreement between the two of them. But amicable arrangement or not, things did not stay cordial. Uh, Aurelian was really adverse to the idea that the Roman Empire was going to be divided by people like Zenobia, who were, you know, really creating their own stable power base. And Palmyra was just getting too powerful for his comfort. So while Aurelian was busy with other campaigns and couldn't really pay attention to what Zenobia was doing, in 270, Palmyrene troops advanced into Syria and Egypt. And Zenobia was able to expand her domain so that it stretched all the way from Egypt to Mesopotamia, and from the Hellespont to North Arabia. 
But in 272, Aurelian was then uh, wrapping up other matters, and he was ready to turn his attention to the Palmyra issue. And as he advanced towards her troops near Antioch, some of her Roman and Greek troops actually deserted. And as a consequence, she suffered a terrible defeat. But then things only got worse when her troops encountered the imperial army again in Emesa, where she was once again defeated. So unlike before, when she had pretty soundly taken care of things, her troops were starting to break up at the same time that Rome's troops were really rallying and getting more powerful and more organized under Aurelian. Yes. This reminds me of a a board game that I like to play called Small World, in which your goal is to take more territory. Yeah. But it gets to a point where you cannot defend the territory that you have anymore, and you start to decline. And that is what happened. Zenobia fell back to Palmyra, but Aurelian was right on her heels. Uh, And it would seem like... He was about to just strike the killing blow. But all of this campaign had really taken a toll on him and his troops. And Aurelian at this point actually offered Zenobia a deal. But in the deal, she would have to surrender. And she was frankly having none of that. Uh, any military strategist would say that this was a really foolish response on her part. She was in terrible trouble already. She'd had two big defeats. And she kind of stirred the pot because she was a little bit of a sass pants. So here's the bulk of the letter that was sent to Zenobia by Aurelian, as printed in R- William Wright's book, An Account of Palmyra and Zenobia. And this was claimed to be preserved by Flavius v- Vopiscus as part of the Historia Augusta. And this is Aurelian's note. You ought to do that of your own accord, which is commanded by my letters. I charge you to surrender on your lives being spared. And you, O Zenobia, may pass your life in some spot where I shall place you in pursuance of the distinguished sentence of the Senate. Your gems, your silver, gold, silk, horses, camels being given up to the Roman treasury. The laws and institutions of the Palmyrans shall be respected. So he's basically saying, you'll have to give us everything, but I'm going to set you up in a nice house. You'll be fine, but you will be surrendered. And Zenobia's response was basically, nope. (laughs) Here is her reply. No one, as yet, except thee, has dared to ask what thou demandest. Whatever is to be achieved by war must be sought by valor. Thou askest me to surrender as if thou wert ignorant that Queen Cleopatra chose rather to perish than to survive her dignity. The Persian auxiliaries whom we await cannot be far off. The Saracens are on our side, as well as the Armenians. The Syrian robbers, O Aurelian, have conquered your army. What then if that band which we expect on all sides shall come? You will then lay aside the superciliousness with which you now demand my surrender, as if you were victor on every side. Yeah, she didn't really have any interest in bending to his will, obviously. I I have to wonder how much of this is... Um, has been made more floral in its <laughs> in its verbiage uh, than the original, but we don't know. This is the one historical piece that yeah. we have. Well, and you know, we we talked, we had a similar situation in our episode about Boudicca. Yeah, that she has the big speech. She has this big speech that was recorded by Roman people, kind of. Yeah, uh, same situation. Yeah. Uh, but regardless of whether that is a more florid version of her reply or not, uh, she did not give up, and the siege on Palmyra continued, and it was nothing short of catastrophic. The city was basically razed, uh, and Palmyra and its residents surrendered, but Zenobia really didn't. She actually took off on a camel, uh, as you do. She was headed to Persia to beg for the help that she had 
thought was going to be coming and had kind of threatened Aurelian with. Uh, and that plan did not work out so well because she was actually uh, pursued and captured by uh, the Roman forces and she was taken before Aurelian for trial. And according to most accounts, right around this time, her son also died. So she was all that was left of the family kingdom that Odonathus had built. And while many Romans uh, apparently demanded Zenobia's death, Aurelian instead wanted to make her a big feature of his victory parade, which was really her last historic appearance uh, that is recorded consistently throughout many uh, tellings. That's the last time she was seen. Uh, and in some versions of this story, he absolutely loaded her down with so many jewels and gold chains and pendants that she could barely walk. Um, almost as if to say, fine, you want to keep all your stuff? Here's how you do it. We're going to put it all on you and make you walk in the parade so I can show you how ridiculous you are. And all of Rome will see it. It's kind of a cruel and interesting way to punish a person. Yeah. Uh, there are some accounts that suggest her son was in the parade, which would say he did not die, but more favored the idea that he was killed around this time. So at the end of Zenobia's life, things are a little cloudy when it comes to details, and there are lots of conflicting accounts of exactly what happened. In some of the stories, she commits suicide. Uh, in others, she's granted her freedom by Aurelian, and she lives out her life in a villa. So the thing that she had not really wanted to have happen. A variation on the suicide story suggests that she starved to death on the trip to Rome and never actually appeared in the parade. Yeah, that she basically went on a hunger strike. She starved herself. Uh, and some accounts, though, even uh, paint this picture of her living this really fab life in her villa and that she married a Roman and she had daughters and they all lived as Romans and happily ever after kind of version. Uh, again, we don't really know. That seems a little far-fetched to me, but it could have happened. I wasn't there. Yeah. Some, some historians like to pair Zenobia with the Queen of Sheba as two examples of strong Arab queens. But Zenobia herself apparently preferred to be uh, compared to Cleopatra. Some historians have suggested that this was kind of a point of pride with her because Cleopatra is more famous than the Queen of Sheba. Uh, So at times she may have even claimed to have been a descendant of Cleopatra, although the math on that is pretty shady. Yeah, like the math and her, her claims of the lineage and how it would have worked don't really work out correctly. She is also sometimes compared to Boudicca, who we've referenced a couple times and we featured in a previous podcast. Uh, and as for her city, Palmyra, it's been a UNESCO World Heritage Site since 1980. It's pretty much abandoned at this point, and it's, there's a little village, I think, nearby, but, uh, there are still ruins that stand that were somehow survived the, the raising that happened under Aurelian. Uh, and I'm sure some was rebuilt, but, That's the scoop, a little bit more of a deeper dive on Zenobia and her mythic status and uh, her relationship with with Rome. Yeah. I don't think we'll ever know the the full true story at this point. Nope. The longer the years go on, the less the information becomes reliable. Well, and even if we find, uh, you know, unearthed from somewhere, more accounts of her life, in all likelihood, they would just add more contradictions rather than clarifying (laughs) anything. They would be new and exciting versions. (laughs) New and exciting contradictions to the story that already has many contradictions. Yeah, which is the peril of any ancient story, ancient history. We can't always trust the accounts. Nope. And the trustworthy ones are often really brief. Yes. (laughs) So we put it together. 
I believe you also have some listener mail. I do. I have two pieces of mail, both about our Haunted Mansion podcast. Uh, the first is from our listener, Jesse, and she says, I listened to both parts of your podcast on the Haunted Mansion while I was at work last week and loved it so much that my husband and I listened to it again on our way to Walt Disney World last Sunday. And I'm wondering if she wasn't there at the same time I was. Uh, it definitely got us in the spirit, no pun intended, and we went on the Haunted Mansion first. That we live in Florida now, I grew up in Southern California, and my family always had annual passes to Disneyland. We would go on all of the rides repeatedly, of course, and this included the Haunted Mansion. Since we were there so frequently, we got to know a lot of the cast members. And one of the stories they were fond of telling us was that there was a little table in the seance room that was often moved by actual spirits during the hours when the park was closed. I have many happy memories of riding the Haunted Mansion and checking to see what side of the room the table would be on that day. Sure enough, sometimes it was on the left side and sometimes it was on the right. Whether or not this was evidence of an actual mischievous spirit or just a bit of extra Disney magic sprinkled on by cast members is up for debate. Uh, we love the podcast. Keep up the good work. So I just love that because it is one of those uh, Disney magic things where no cast member will tell you one way or the other. Tell you probably spirits. I love it. And then we got uh, another great email from Jeff, who is the webmaster at doombuggies.com that I actually referenced in our podcast. He says, hi, Tracy and Holly. Great episode on the Haunted Mansion, a personal passion of mine. One thing I thought I'd point out in case it might matter to you, and of course it does, Jeff, uh, the Evergreen House you mentioned is not actually any reference for the architectural look of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. That was debunked a few years ago by a couple of Disney historians and sleuths, and my website played a part. And Jason Sorrell even noted the new information in the revised edition of his book that came out a couple of years ago. The Winchester House and also Hearst Castle, by the way, were studied by uh, W.E.D. primarily in terms of how they handled group tours. Ken Anderson actually just copied, right down to the perspective, a photo of another house in Baltimore called the Shipley Lidecker House. That He found it in a book of Victorian art that was in the W.E.D. library. Uh, and he says if the W.E.D. Imagineers did visit the Evergreen House in Baltimore, I'm guessing it was simply to research the Shipley Lidecker House since the Evergreen House is part of Johns Hopkins University. But the Shipley Lidecker House is very clearly the beginning and end of the architectural inspiration for Walt's Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. I'll attach a side-by-side image. Uh, but I love the episode, and I'm looking forward to part two. And this gave me an awesome excuse to buy the updated version of the book when I was in Disney World yesterday. <laughs> I just got back. Uh, and it, he is absolutely correct. That is mentioned in the update. So thank you, Jeff, for correcting that, because... Of course we care. That's cool stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to visit all those houses that were part of the... I mean, I've been to a couple, but that would be a fun tour. Like, the inspiration for Disneyland's Haunted Mansion tour of weird and wonderful mansions. Let's do that for, okay. the, for the podcast. Let's do... Uh, so thank you to both of you for your fun emails. Keep those coming. If you would like to email us, you can do so at historypodcasts at discovery.com. You can visit us at facebook.com slash stuff. On Twitter, at Mist in History and mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We are also on Pinterest, pinning historical things and things of historical interest. Uh, if you would like to learn about a, a topic related to today's subject, you can go to our website. And for a fun and wacky search, you can type in the words First Feminist. And uh, the article that will come up is, Were Ancient Egyptians the First Feminists? And that was written by Kristen Conger of Stuff Mom Never Told You. And it is a really fun read. So if you would like to learn about that or anything else your mind can conjure, you should do so at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.